Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Michael Vincent. He's a professional magician. Mike is somebody I've known for nine, 10 years, maybe longer. And he's a fascinating character. He's been a professional magician since 1991. He has become uh, more and more profoundly deaf. And as a result, he struggles to perform in um, noisy environments now. And recently, uh, he actually gave up his career to look after his mother. And the reason we're talking today is he's got such a fascinating story about how he responded to um, surprises in his life that were utterly unexpected and, in fairness, unwelcome, and how he responded. Because I think as we go into this difficult period, it's really important that we begin to understand understand what really matters and uh, what we have control and agency over and what we don't and well, how we need to perceive ourselves. So, Mike, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. So great to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's just a delight to um, you know, reconnect. And I, I know that you've been through a pretty tough time. But would you mind just start by uh, telling us how you became a magician and why you became a magician uh, and uh, the sort of challenges that you faced being Afro-Caribbean with no role models? Well, I hope everyone finds this interesting because I certainly do. Looking back on things in some sort of retrospective, I was born in 1964 and I consider this a very critical time to be born, especially as I became a professional magician, or let me reframe that, a student in the craft of magic. When I was six years old, 1970, I saw David Nixon on television. He was like the generation before Paul Daniels. And throughout the Christmas period, there would always be magicians on television in one magic show or another. I would see the American Doug Henning. I would see Michael Parkinson do his special chat show, which featured Fred Capps, Ricky Jay and the incomparable Ricciardi Jr. These are three of probably the greatest magicians alive at that time, around 1975. I'm 13 years old then. And that was the bug that really gripped my imagination because as a young child watching these magicians, I experienced pure astonishment. Now, keep in mind, Marcus, I hadn't read a magic book. I just saw these magicians performing And I had the experience that magic was real. It felt real. This is important because I said to myself, where can somebody learn to do something like this? And I kid you not, at the end of my road is a library. And I went into the library as a young boy. And I said to the librarian, miss, do you have any books on how to become a magician? She said, come with me, young man. So she takes me around the section of hobbies and crafts. And they had a whole shelf full of magic books. I was in heaven. And uh, let me back, uh, backtrack just a bit because my mother, she taught me how to read before I went to nursery. She would read me Bible stories. She bought me a kiddies Bible book. And that's where I started putting words together. And she would read to me Hansel and Gretel stories. So from a very young age, I've been reading books. So when I got the books from the library, it was so natural for me to read about the history of magic and to start beginning to make sense of the lexicon, the language that magicians use to explain tricks. Do you realize that magic is probably one of the most documented subjects out of all the subjects compared to cookery, football, you name it. There are more books are published on magic than on any other subject. Wow. So when I was a boy, I had access to great material, classic books. And I started practicing as a young boy. And in 1978, I would see a magician on television who would have a big impact on my life. This was the great Slydini, S-L-Y-D-I-N-I. So your listeners can Google Slydini and Google will provide a lot of information. Slydini was like the Hannibal Lecter of psychology, but he was a beautiful magician because he understood that magic happens in the mind the spectator makes up the story about what it thinks it just saw. So a master magician creates a narrative. He creates a visual play. And then the audience 
interprets what they're seeing and hearing. And if the magician does his job right, the audience will leave with the feeling that magic is real. I spent four days in his company. It was the equivalent of spending time with Bandler and Grindler. Mm-hmm. In 82, I met Sly. Yes, I met Slidini in 1982 in New York. And as I think back to that time in his company, he drilled me and coached me in understanding that my technique has to be impeccable, but to never underestimate what the audience is thinking and feeling every step of the way. Okay, so let me just intervene at the moment. Has anyone actually drawn the parallel here between a good sale and a good magician? Because nothing that Mike has described is any different from how a good salesperson should perform. Their technique needs to be flawless. They need to be practiced and prepared. They need to understand the dynamics and um, how the audience thinks. And they need to understand that the trick happens in the customer's mind, just as the decision to purchase does. I'm not surprised to hear you bring this up because magic is all about selling. What am I selling? I'm selling the illusion of impossibility. Right. And again, parallel, what we sell as salespeople is change. And the problem is that people fear the uncertainty of change. And what Mike is selling here is the possibility that, wow, how can this happen? That's why great salespeople and great solutions feel effortless when you do business with them. And it feels like magic. This is beautiful. My last performance was last Friday. I've got it on video. And I've been studying my own work visually. And I was looking at the lady on my right, and uh, she was hyperventilating <gasps> at, the ex- <laughs> at the experience she had just had. You just said it. People fear uncertainty. Now, a great magician, what does he do? He pushes you over the edge. You've got no wings. You can't fly. Your sense of reality has completely crumbled beneath you. But guess what? You have a safe landing because the magician is at the bottom of the cliff ready to catch you. The masters. Why? Because he wants you to feel safe having that experience. It's a beautiful thing. And everything you've just described, performance review, making sure buyer safety comes first. All of this is a parallel to selling. It's perfect, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful connection. I was thinking about the word cooperation that we discussed the other day, yesterday, in fact. And I had to think, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because with cooperation, both sides trust each other. Now, consider this. The audience knows the magician is going to say something but mean something else. They know the magician is going to do something sneaky with the right hand while something dodgy is happening with the left hand. They know it. But... Why do they surrender to the experience? This is something that I find really interesting. I believe the audience surrenders to the experience for one reason only. Somewhere in this perverse conversation of deception, blatant lies and narrative, the audience trusts the magician not to harm them. Hmm. And this is about intent. When you show up, if your intent is to do something to the prospect, do a move, manipulate, push, pressurize, they will pick it up and they will reflect back what you project out. And I suspect, given condition of deafness, that heightened your level of empathy. I think it was in the preamble to this, we talked about the empathy becoming your superpower. So I'm really curious how your ability to read the audience's emotional response heightened your ability to perform. Okay, let me pay tribute to my mentor, Alan Allen. He used to have a magic shop in Holborn, and I used to go there every day after school. And from the moment I met him, he said two things to me. He said, Michael, never forget this. Magic is a means of communication. And he also said, Never underestimate the intelligence of your audience. Accept the fact that your audience has an intelligence at least equal to yours, right? Now, to get to your question, this reading of the audience, Alan said to me, from the moment the audience meets you, the minute you are in view, the second you walk out on stage, the audience must feel they can trust you. They don't know you, but they must feel they can. 
And I said, well, Alan, how do you manage to do that? He said, there's a certain energy in your being. And we would study videos of Fred Capps, the way he walked on. He walked on straight. Channing Pollock is a perfect example. He would walk on straight, beautiful posture, slim, tail suit. He had this expression on his face that pulled you right in. And you were wondering, who is this man of mystery? What is he going to do? And I became really interested in this side topic. And I came across a book called You Are the Message. I reckon anybody in business must read this book, You Are the Message by Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes, A-Y-L-E-S? I think it's A-I-L-E-S. Not the guy who started Fox News. Who started? Fox News. I'm not sure if it's him, but he's the guy that coached Ronald Reagan when he was going for presidency against Walter Mondale. Ah, uh, right. Well, he, I, I think it may well be Roger Ailes. Right. Well, he wrote a book called uh, you, he, he wrote a book called You Are the Message, and he said something quite significant. He said, when you meet somebody new for the first time, it doesn't matter where it is, in the first seven seconds, that person will have got the whole message about you. Yeah. Seven seconds, Marcus. Imagine getting the whole banquet in such a tiny spoonful. Again, I, I understand it. I think the challenge here is how do you control your instinctive reaction to react instead of deliberately respond? Because it sounds to me, again, to draw the parallel, your obsession started early and you dove into the subject broadly. It wasn't just about the technique. It was about the history. It was about the personalities. It was about their performance art. And you developed an eclectic knowledge of your uh, domain. And then you sought excellence and you sought out help. And again, I cannot begin to stress enough, what uh, Mike's giving you is a blueprint to run your sales or leadership career. Say that last bit again for me. You cannot... If you do what Mike has just suggested uh, in terms of those behaviors, those attitudes towards performance and improvement and excellence and constant learning, that's exactly what top performers in every field, whether you're um, an off-piece skier or a salesperson, I don't know, a gymnast, you're always going to have those qualities and those behaviors. Right. Let me backtrack and really fine tune my response to your question. I realized that because of those seven seconds, I have an opportunity to influence the thoughts and feelings that my audience has within the first seven seconds of my show. So I began to explore, well, what can I do that would trigger a feeling of safety, a feeling of excitement? And a feeling of, my God, this is going to be great within my audience. Well, when I first read this book, I certainly didn't have the level of prestige that I have now. But prestige is a big part of the conversation because whenever I do a show, Marcus, I make sure that the person introduced me mentions a number of key facts, who I am, what I've done, where I've been, and for who I've done it. And the most critical thing is, You may have seen him on television with Jonathan Ross and Penn and Teller. He made two successful appearances. This is important because the audience now knows, my God, if he's been on telly, what's he doing here? He should be traveling the world. This is prestige of a high caliber. Now, let's break it down. Before I go on stage, I always clear myself. I just do an inventory. How am I feeling? Is there anything aggravating me? It may have been raining outside or when the buses weren't working, I was really annoyed because I needed to be on time. So I had to work out my journey to get to the venue in the most effective way possible. It all worked out fine, but I was still a bit miffed. But I needed to be emotionally calm and stable before the audience saw me because I never want to go on stage with any kind of negativity. Otherwise, the audience will feel that. He's not in a... Yeah, they will, definitely. And this will interfere with their reaction to my show. So imagine going into a sales meeting and you're not happy. And this is the first thing you have to focus on, which is creating comfort. 
comfort. Yes. Sure that the buyer feels comfortable with you, human being to human being. Yes. And, and I think what you're describing here is actually showing some humanity and showing up fully present. So you're not distracted. The audience is your sole point of attention. Yes, yes. And uh, one of my mentors is a gentleman named Darwin Ortiz. And he said something very interesting to me. He said, Mike, I say this to magicians all the time, but they don't listen. I say, you've got to listen to your audience. So I really quizzed him on this. I said, how could you listen to your audience while you're talking and performing? This was interesting to me because my mentor, Alan Allen, he once said to me, Michael, you do realize when you're performing, you can actually watch yourself watching the audience. I said, how do you do that? He said, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. But he said, the only way you can do it is you have complete mastery over the technique and the presentation. And then you can step back and just watch the whole thing. And again, if you've worked with me in the past, you'll have heard me say that the sale should feel like a third-party out-of-body experience. It's one of David Sanders' rules. I always Absolutely. love that because um, what it forces you to do is prepare so well that in the moment, there is no thinking about what the technique or the tactic or the question exactly. is next. Yeah. But what you're doing is you're reading the room and you're responding in the moment. And remember, listening is a whole body experience. Oh. You don't just listen with your ears. You listen with your eyes. You listen with your gut. You listen by observing. What you're looking for are patterns and clusters of behavior. And the seven-second rule also applies to where people leak the truth. I did a, a course on investigative interviewing. And what's really interesting is that when police or interviewers are interviewing, what you should be looking for is within seven seconds of the meaning of the question becoming clear to the recipient, you're looking for three points of interest. They might may be psychophysiological. So it may be pupil dilation or lip contraction. It may be coloration of the throat or the bulging of the, uh, the vein on uh, the head, blink rate, tonality, voice, pitch, cadence, the language patterns, emission, silence. All of this is a wealth of information. Oh, and my God, yeah. You miss that if all you're doing is you're trying to wait for the gap so you can fill it with the sound of your own voice. Mm -hmm. What you've just described is all the micro expressions that I missed before losing my hearing. <laughs> what a beautiful irony. <laughs> because being a master of misdirection, I allowed other people's words and communication at me, I put value on what they were saying, not on who they were being in the moment. I missed all of that. And in many cases, it cost me dearly. How so? Let me give you an example. I've had a lot of girlfriends in my life. Knowing what I know now about micro expressions and the reaction that comes after asking a straight question to someone, most of them I would never have dated. Okay. <laughs> and that's the honest to God truth. But with the information that I now have, Marcus, guess what? When I meet people, I become like Columbo. I become a detective. I want to understand the values and the rules that people live by. I want to understand their model of the world. Because here's the most beautiful thing that was passed on to me by the great Di Vernon, a magician I met in Hollywood. He was 98 when I met him. And I would never have expected this old man to say this to me, of all people. But he says, hey, Michael, I want to share something with you. He's puffing on the end of a cigar. Listen very carefully, kid. When you do a magic trick for someone, pay close attention to how they react. Because how they react will show you their relationship to the world, life, and themselves. Okay. Unpack that for me. Let's unpack this. Some people react like magic is real. Oh, wow. You see the astonishment on their face. Everything is open and clear. These people are beautiful to work with. Why? Because they're open, they're receptive, and they're responsive. And in that moment, they're vulnerable. Wow. They're vulnerable. Some people are a little bit more guarded. 
All right, Mr. Magic, you think you're so cool? Fool me. Let me shuffle the cards. Right here, I'm dealing with a cynical human being that wants to know the answers to everything. So guess what? I let them have their 10 minutes of fame in my show. Here, shuffle the cards. Do whatever you want. Are you happy? Now, think of a card. Don't say it out loud. And I then read their minds. And I watch them crumble like babies. <laughs> because, because afterwards, there's nowhere to go. And they realized, all right, I've had my 10 minutes. Over to you, master. Now, again, there is a really critical parallel with selling. In the sale, if you don't turn up and disrupt their current preferences and break their myths and beliefs early, then you will find that they will come and bite you later. So you need to deconstruct their perception of their current situation. Did and you use the word disrupt? Yes. That's like a pattern interrupt, right? Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. Got it. So yeah. you, you've got to disrupt their current preferences. So if they are wedded to a particular way of doing things, the way we do things around here is you need to uh, help them see why the pain of staying stuck is greater than the pain of change. Ah, uh -huh, yes. The only thing anyone sells is change. You do it as well. You're changing their state. You're changing their perception. And yes. if I'm selling an aircraft carrier or I'm selling hemorrhoid cream, you're asking people to change what they're doing and buy something else, uh, then you have to help them go through that process. Now, the challenge is how do you help them make the intellectual shortcut? Because you've already made the 12 steps to get there and you know how to do it. The challenge is how do you bring your audience along so that they can make that leap and that astonishment, they're willing to let go, they're surrendering. Because you have to let your customers surrender the order. You've used one of my favorite phrases, surrender. Listen carefully. In my performance, I say to my audience, I said, one of the biggest challenges for me as a magician, ladies and gentlemen, is that I spend many hours on my own practicing, reading, studying, perfecting, repeating. And I'm in front of a big mirror, sometimes a video camera, to look at my angles to see if the illusion looks good to my eye, if it matches my vision. If it does, it's ready to be shared with an audience, but it's not enough. I need, I need you. Together, we have to cooperate to create this atmosphere of magic. I can't do it on my own. I need you to be willing to surrender to the possibility that magic might be real. And together, we create the experience. Think about that. Together, we create the experience. And this, again, is why there, there is an implicit contract between you and the audience. In the sales environment, you have to be more explicit because there's obviously money, careers, uh, livelihoods at stake. So it's really imperative that people are clear about what their role is. The audience understands their role. Their role is to witness, participate, be astonished. Uh, your role is to give them something to remember and astonish them with. Yes, understanding the role, the upfront contract. Do you remember the film The Prestige? I do, very much. When I watch that film, I think of my time with you, Marcus. <laughs> because the, if you watch... The Crash the of the Canaries. <laughs> well, <laughs> just consider this. In the film, Michael Caine establishes the three-act play. He said, right at the moment is the pledge. It's the upfront contract between the audience and the magician. Now comes the turn. The turn is where the magician presents his case to the audience. And the audience then has to decide, where's this going? It could be something as simple as making a coin disappear or a bird disappear. Now, the prestige is the moment of truth when the magician brings the bird back or something amazing happen, or a salesman presents all the benefits, the features, the advantages, and the benefits of his product, that the audience or the, the buyer is left in no doubt that this product delivers. And in my audience's case, they, they had the experience that magic might be real. That's the prestige. And if I do my job right, I have, I have the prestige. And the, the, one of the really interesting things is that wonder because there isn't a reveal uh, in terms of how it's done, there's always that wonder. And I think in the sale, there needs to be some of that mystery. And um, 
more, I, I think leaving your customer with really interesting, provocative questions is something we can learn from stagecraft as well. Because what, when I'm uh, asked to do a talk, I always ask, what do you want the audience to do, say, and remember as a result of me being on your program? Um, and very often, no one's really given that any thought or consideration. And as you start to unpack it, the real priorities start to come out. So again, as, you go, as you've gone through this journey of learning your craft, it strikes me that you've taken on many, many mentors. You've been vulnerable enough to ask for help from a lot of people. When did you realize the importance of mentors and coaches? Oh, this is very good. Okay, I'm going to be very vulnerable now and share a little piece of my backstory. I'm an only child, and my mother raised me by herself. I had no father, nothing. It's the one big missing from my life. So I grew up wondering, where's my dad? Where's my father figure? So when I walked into the magic shop for the first time as a 14-year-old, and the gentleman behind the counter, Alan, he spoke to me in a way that caught my attention because I was already doing some very nice magic at that age because I'd been practicing for about a year. But he was the first person to see me do magic. So when I bought a few tricks from him, he said, young man, will you be coming in again? I said, I don't know. I have to ask my mother because I live quite far from here. Oh, well, if you do come in again, I'll be very happy to see you. Well, I'd never had anybody speak to me like that. Well, So guess what? I went back to his shop. Oh, nice to see you again, Michael. What is it this time? He said, well, I saw this magician on telly named David Copperfield do a trick with the dancing cane. and." I was thinking about buying it. So Alan became my first mentor. I don't want to waffle too long, but he was the first one. I never thought about the importance of mentors. I was driven to find a father figure that was missing from my life. It just so happened that my father figures were all magicians. Alan introduced me to Cyan Field. Cyan Field was a Hollywood movie director. He directed Michael Caine in the film Zulu. Ah, right. Okay. He lived in London. And when I met him, I said, Mr. Enfield, I've got your book. I think it's fantastic. He said, you've got my book, kid? I said, yes, sit down. That's how I met him at, <laughs> at Valerie's Patisserie in Old Compton Street in 1979. <laughs> and I knew Cyan right until he died. Wonderful man. And then Alan introduces me to Slidini. And then I met all my other heroes at a big convention in 1982. So as I think back to all of my teachers in magic, I was looking for a father figure, but now we call them mentors. So let's stick with that context. For me, mentors are very important because each of us, we will reach a point in time in our lives where I feel we become the teacher, the sage, and it feels natural to give something back. I'm in that stage now through my academy where I teach magicians around the world online because they've come to me. They've seen my videos online. So for me, if you look at Michael Jordan, if you look at Roger Federer, all the top people in sports, business, academics, they all had great teachers, but they weren't afraid to seek advice outside of their network because my inspirations come from many different sources. I have a mentor for sleight of hand. I had a mentor for artistry and presentation. Cy Enfield was my mentor for scripting and becoming an actor. So extrapolating ideas from different sources is quite intelligent. Uh, well, I have, uh, and at any one time, I can have up to six coaches on the go because different areas need different attention. And I think the mistake people make is they they start thinking that they've arrived and they're the complete finished article. The moment you think that, remind yourself of this proverb, if you're green, you grow, if you're ripe, you rot. And there's an awful lot of uh, rotten fruit out there that is convinced of its own brilliance because they don't keep going back to practice the fundamentals. I mean, how often are you practicing the real basics Oh, this is beautiful. I call it back to basics, master the fundamentals. 
I've been writing some micro essays, micro essays on Instagram for my community. And it's called Mastering the Classics. Have you read this book? Have you practiced this technique? Review your material, videotape your performances as much as possible because you need to see how you look through the eyes of your audience. The video camera has no opinion about how you look, but the audience will. And you will see things about yourself that's going to make you feel very nervous and uncomfortable. And you've got to make changes. I'll tell you a true story. In the last three weeks, I've done three performances back to back. And I videotape each performance. I put my iPhone on a stand behind the audience and I film the whole thing. And part of my post-show analysis is to watch every frame. I can lip read myself so I know what I'm saying because I can't hear anything. I'm watching my body language. I'm watching my eye contact. But I'm also watching how the people are reacting to me. Very important. So, again, it's like a post-match debrief. You know, you'd have Federer would be going shot by shot, frame by frame, looking at posture, position, foot positioning, distance, hydration, breathing, the whole shit and shebang. If you are professional at what you do, I think you owe it to your customers or to your audience uh, to constantly improve and work on those fundamentals without any exception every single day. Well, you know what? It's funny you say that. I mentioned to my community, do not underestimate the emotions of your audience. They deserve the absolute best you can give them. Don't compromise. The craft of magic will repay you in ways you cannot possibly imagine if you treat the craft with the dignity, with the love and respect it deserves. So knuckle down, practice, get out your journal, make notes, videotape yourself and stick your nose in your performance and look at every detail that doesn't look right and then correct it. On the subject of journaling, I'm thoroughly enjoying a book by my friend Antonio Garrido. And it's called My Daily Leadership. And it's how to create a leadership journal. But it's a beautiful framework for creating personal accountability and your development. A lesson that I learned this week, last week has been a fascinating week because I've learned a lot. And one of the lessons is how do you use your calendar to drive your development? Your calendar to drive, to drive your, dev- your development. Right. Um, um, so are you calendar blocking time for very specific practice of fundamentals? Are you calendar blocking time for learning? Because that is the stuff that frees up your time so that you don't have to do as much prospecting. You don't have to do as much replacement of customers because you're actually paying attention to your audience. You're paying attention to what your customers want and you're meeting them where they will be, not where you want them. And this is the really important thing because the audience, I'm guessing, wants to be wowed and awed and you know, in wonder. And they want to be entertained because they want their money's worth. You know, one of my favorite exercises to remind people why excellence is not an option is when you're in front of a CEO and they carry a billion-dollar P&L, that's roughly 400000 a day that they need to be bringing in. Your hour costs them fifty grand. How dare you turn up half-assed and not prepared? If you're in front of an audience and they've spent 30 or 50 quid per ticket and there's 200 of them, you owe them value. And I think we have to take far more responsibility for learning ourselves. And this is one of the really interesting things about people who are excellent at their craft. They take ownership of learning. They don't expect to be taught. They go out and they find out what needs to be learned. They look for what they do not know, and then they seek out help. Oh, my goodness. You reminded me of something Alan said to me when I was a boy. He said to me, I like you, Michael. He said, all the other young kids, they come in buying jokes and stink bombs, but you come in wanting to talk about magic. He was 51, 52 when I met him. And I imagine for him, the day that I walked into his shop, it was like a shot in the arm because he was just selling jokes. He had just retired. And for him to say that to me, it just meant that he would never, ever have to teach me magic. I would take responsibility for that. 
And one Saturday afternoon, he said to me, I don't need to teach you magic. You learn all the tricks by yourself, and then you bring the tricks to me, and I will transform you into a performer. And this is exactly what we should be thinking our coaches and our managers should be doing. I had a little trip to the woodshed on Thursday or Friday last week when I was speaking to a genuinely brilliant sales leader, a guy called Tim Kirby. And I said to him, Tim, there are two things that managers need. They, they, need, um, they need to focus on hire the best people and get the best out of them. And he picked me up and he said, they challenged me. And he said, you're wrong on the second one. The job of the managers and the leaders is to create the conditions, the frameworks, all that stuff, so they, they can become the best person at that job. Um, uh. It's their responsibility to learn. And this is where enablement, I think, uh, goes wrong because it's become a training function instead of a business function. Uh, uh. I think what we should be doing is working with an enablement function to be the executors, the people who execute the board's plan, and they enable the management layer to prepare their team. Because I think most training is wasted because people turn up, they're not really volunteers. They uh, are looking for technique. And this is where uh, the difference between the pill pusher seller and uh, the subject matter expert, you know, they're kind of always pushing a message and they've got a, a vested interest in trying to get you to buy from them. Then you've got the hero seller. And the hero seller is someone who takes a position, they're very strong, they're against something, and they throw rocks at your enemies. They validate your failures. They justify your fears. And they help you throw rocks at your enemies. And then you've got the sage. And the sage is somebody who people come to for their wisdom, come to in the hope that some of their smarts will rub off. And those people don't give you they don't spoon feed you. They give you the 10 or 20%. You can't work out on your own. And once you've got enough, they hand you back the pen. So now you're back in control and you've got to finish the rest off for yourself. And it sounds to me like that's exactly what um, Alan did with you. Alan and all of my teachers, and I'm also including my mentors in the field of personal development. I just want to mention for the people listening, I'm a senior graduate of, of Landmark Education. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I spent six years in the education. And throughout the six years, they continually stress that we want to train you to train yourself to be responsible for your own learning about yourself. So you become a student about how you function in the world. So you're going to notice your own blind spots. This was quite interesting to me because you mentioned it as a question. What's your blind spot? Well, it's the things you can't see about yourself. Yep. Okay. But when you expand your point of view about yourself, you'll begin to see things about yourself that were hidden from your view. Like you might be impatient. You might be driven by the need to make money, or you might be driven by the need to be right, to be powerful, rather than just shutting up and letting people have a space to express themselves, learning to listen, learning to listen actively, and learning to listen beyond the spoken message, and then being able to, re to recreate the conversation with someone so that they feel that you truly heard what they were saying. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's so it, profound what I'm saying because it, most, most people in business don't listen, Marcus. And there is a reason for that, which is that I think the focus is on the wrong thing. We've forgotten that the customer is the reason we exist that we don't exist in spite of them. We in, uh, exist because of the customer. In the same, reason, the same way, performers exist because of their audience. And if you don't appreciate that, then it's very, very easy to become your own worst enemy. You'll create the conditions where you will project out selfish self-interest. And what you'll get reflected back is defensiveness and distrust. Um, and we see this all the time. And I, I, you know, the reason I was cringing when you were saying that is I can do this out in uh, areas where I can detach myself. But at home, I've realized painfully just what a twat I am and how I react 
in certain certain situations and particularly I'm finding it very difficult with my uh, middle daughter Anna who is also deaf because her response her, her verbal response to me sounds like an aggressive uh, reaction so my my instinctive reaction is to think that she's behaving in a way that I don't think she means to come across and it feels entitled or it feels rude and aggressive. And so as a, as a, as a daughter father relationship, right? Exactly. And how do I separate myself from that? Cause I'd be really interested from your perspective because no doubt you've had to go through this uh, from Anna's side. Uh, So a little bit of therapy for me here. Sorry, audience. Hey, let, Let me, let me just share this with your readers. My hearing started to deteriorate in 2003. I could still hear, but I was just noticing slight whistling and the beginning of aggressive tinnitus, okay? In 2013, I woke up one morning and my hearing had gone completely. I panicked because I had a show that night. What the hell's going on? Anyway, I got through it. The doctor told me I experienced dramatic, sudden dramatic hearing loss. He said, you've got a little bit hearing left, which may need some hearing aids, and they do provide some level of comfort. However, what happened after all of that diagnosis? I experienced profound inadequacy. How can I communicate? How can I express myself? Talking, listening, and hearing is a big part of my communication, so I thought. So what I experienced was intense frustration with everything and everyone. And I imagine frustration is an emotion that Anna must be feeling. I'm just asserting. And it comes across aggressive. Because guess what? I became aggressive, particularly with people close to me. And then I just thought, enough. Michael, just sit quietly. And then I asked a magical question. I said, okay, Landmark Forum, how does your technology help me to deal with this? I said, Michael, don't be a muppet. What's the most powerful thing you ever learned from Landmark? Landmark gave you six years of training in the art of listening. And what was the secret ingredient to listening? I said, you don't listen with your ears. You hear with your ears. Listening is a function of the mind and heart. Okay, I like that a lot. Okay. Listening is a function of the mind and heart. Marcus, I kid you not, when I had this diagnosis with myself, this is the beautiful thing about Landmark. It forces you to have a conversation with yourself. And somewhere deep inside my mind, the truth comes out. And when I said those words, that was the beginning of my rehabilitation. Would you mind unpacking what you mean by you hear with your ears and listening as a function of the heart and mind? Well, the fact that I was struggling to come to terms with losing my hearing when I began to do my own psychoanalysis and I came up with that realization, you listen with the mind and heart. It means that I was not paying attention as much as I thought I was prior to losing my hearing. I was relying on my ears primarily to get the information when in actual fact, there was a whole world of information that I was missing. Okay, so I'm now in a world of silence. I had to learn to lip read. I had to teach myself how to lip read. (coughs) Excuse me. I had to teach myself how to lip read playing cards, simple phrases, and to really pay attention to people in a way that I'd never done before, primarily to see the shape of the words they were speaking. But then I realized something, Michael, you're seeing so much more. And then I began to realize my natural gift in the world, Marcus. I'm a natural empath. I feel people. I love the X-Men. And if I was part of that universe and I had this experience with my ears as a young boy, my mutation would have been quite extraordinary because I thought, how would I be in the X-Men universe? Well, I would be able to tell when people are lying. I would be able to read people's facial expressions from a thousand paper cases. I would be able to sense danger 
in a heavy atmosphere. I would be a skilled negotiator and salesman. I would be working probably in some kind of political office. Why? Because that's where real empathy and negotiation is required to create harmony. I would, I would be highly trained in the art of self-defense, but only as a last resort, because the main thing as an empath is to preserve life, no matter what, and not to say or do anything that destroys the life within others. This is who I am. I'm about building life up, not destroying. So, Mike, I'd like to wrap up on the last couple of years, because I know you've gone through a profound change. When your mother fell ill, uh, you gave up your career. Now, Correct. it did coincide with COVID. So, I mean, um, I, I suspect it would have been uh, quite hard anyway. But yes, um, you, know, you, you intentionally did that prior to COVID. I'm curious about that journey because it, it seems to have had a very profound experience on you. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. So my last trip abroad was in Europe, 2019. Then I, I came home. I decided not to do any more traveling. And I just thought, stay home and look after mum. So this was around September 2019. So 2020, we come into the COVID situation. Okay. It was profoundly confronting for me, Marcus, because I didn't know what it meant to be a carer. My mother suffers with dementia and uh, our conversation slowly deteriorated. And the hardest thing for me was giving up the notion that my mother has to respond to me the way that I remembered because she would say and do things that was just completely alien to the woman that raised me. This was heartbreaking. Okay. I had to learn how to navigate the world of social care and carers coming into my home three, four times a day. Okay. I had to learn to navigate doing the unthinkable when there was nobody else around to support me. Okay. Anyone that listens to this who's in, in the world of looking after someone will know exactly what I mean. So I don't want to be too graphic. All I'll say is I took on the role of caring for my mother 100%. I'm doing the things that she once did for me as a baby. So how did this impact me? I couldn't think straight. I couldn't sleep straight. The only thing that probably saved me was going for walks with my camera and photographing the squirrels in my park. Mm -hmm. That was a reset back to zero. I couldn't practice straight because I was locked down. I wasn't performing and I wasn't earning. So this was an additional worry. Okay. As my savings slowly dwindled, looking after my mother. So what saved me throughout this process? Once again, I said to myself, how does Landmark's technology support me in this situation? Listen carefully. You don't know how strong you are until you need to become strong. You have the ability to redesign and recreate yourself beyond anything you can possibly imagine. When a situation shows up in your life, the key question to ask yourself is, who do I need to become to manage myself in the face of this confronting situation. I may not be this particular person, but if I needed to become this person, could I? And what would drive this person forward to becoming a carer and learning to navigate and negotiate the world of social care, hospitals, and God knows what else. And uh, a friend of mine, Mandy, said to me, Michael, I looked after my mother and I'm going to give you something that may be of support. You're going to have days where something will happen and it's going to upset you profoundly. But consider this, you will only be upset about this particular thing once and once only, because when it happens again, it won't affect you. I'm just preparing you for those odd days. Guess what, Marcus? She was right. She gave me a wonderful gift. This again speaks to something that is really important and very current. If you are not thinking about and preparing for what is to come, and that is not necessarily having all the answers. Right. It's learning to understand yourself and being able to um, be able to identify the triggers and what it feels like as you're building up to react instead of respond. Mm. Because your ability to stay calm 
in the middle of this recession when the prices are coming at you from every angle and the conditions in which you're operating are really very difficult. We are going into an extremely precarious time with enormous social upheaval and uh, strife and uh, the difference between rich and poor becoming greater and greater. Over the next two years, as we move into the election uh, seasons for both the UK and the US, there will be a lot of bad actors and there'll be a lot of people trying to foment trouble. And you as a business owner, you as a performer, whatever it is, you need to be able to stay calm and navigate your way through this. And the best preparation you can uh, have is learning to uh, how you can respond best when surprises are thrown in, are thrown at you and you have very limited resources. You know, the point you made is that you don't know how strong you are until you really need to be strong. Well, you well, don't know how strong you are until you need to be strong and you don't know how strong your network is until you start trying to cooperate with them. And I think you have to start that process sooner rather than later. Right, right. Someone who thinks that you have to do it all yourself, you are going to find the next five to seven years excruciatingly painful. You know something? This is one of my biggest failings in life, thinking and acting and being a lone ranger, thinking I can do everything on my own. And uh, I realize cooperation and building a strong tribe of people. This is the next stage of learning for me, the next stage of being, the next stage of contributing and serving beyond myself, my network, okay? And uh, if there's one thing I'm grateful for was being humble enough to allow the carers that came in every day to coach me, mm. all right? These are young girls. They're not even in their 30s, but I watched the way they navigated doing they things. Do with such grace and compassion. Oh, and not a hair out of place, not a bead of perspiration. And one girl in particular, I want to acknowledge her. Her name's Linda. She was wonderful with my mother. And uh, I just watched her calmness. So I just modeled that. I modeled her behavior. I modeled her calmness because... I'm a very reactive human being, much to my own failing and disappointment. And I realized reacting is not the answer. Practice the discipline of being calm and respond. And I, I, would you believe I read the Bible through this period? I developed a relationship with understanding who Jesus was as a human being. I just played a little game with myself. Michael, don't be a Muppet. Read the New Testament to get an understanding of who Jesus was. And Marcus, I read it, and I could really see for myself how the life of Jesus was all about service, teaching, contribution, demonstrating love, even in the face of great suffering and pain, and leading his disciples, his network, to be better than him long after he'd gone. Because there's a lovely quote in the Bible where he says, if you think that was great, you too will do great things. Again, I mean, full disclosure, I, I'm, I have no faith. However, uh, what I do believe is that there are great teachings. And I think we need to believe in the power of humanity and our ability to build on what came before. And I think what, one really important lesson that I've learned this year, which I've taken very much to heart, is that we don't inherit the land and the, the world uh, from our past and our ancestors. We rent it from the future. We rent um, the world from the future. Yeah, we, well, we, we resent, we, we, yeah, we, we rent the world from the future generations and we are custodians of it. Um, and uh -huh. it's our responsibility to add to the greater good and leave the world better than uh, we found it. Yes. That lack of community that lack of um, a sense of a need to contribute is compounded uh, by a lot of business culture where you know it's short-term, it's focused on quarter by quarter, it's set up so a few win and the majority don't or they actively lose. That kind of system can only work for so long 
before it either runs out of steam or there's you know, a backlash. And my fear is that we're heading towards that backlash because of lack of understanding, a lack of willingness to look for the common ground. Because you can't build bridges where there is no common ground. What I'm hearing from you, Marcus, is a world that works for everybody, where nobody's left out. Again, I, I, I'm a pragmatist. I don't think you can uh, get there, but I think you can strive for it. And if everyone is working towards that, then fewer people will fall through the net. And when they do, then we can do a better job of catching them. Because in the same way that you looked after your mother and she's become an elderly child, in effect, I think we have that responsibility to the next generations. You know, I've set up a couple of communities and movements deliberately to try and create the best conditions possible and the best resources possible for the next generation. So when I'm dead and gone, people can take what I've collated and brought together and build on it. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm not a great inventor. What I'm really good at is joining the dots. But there are other people that I know who can build on this stuff and do amazing things. And that, I think, is where we should be aiming uh, to, uh, you know, that, those are the people that I think we should be aiming to become if we are excellent at our craft. I think we have a responsibility there. I had an experience recently about what it means to be a magician. When I step out in front of an audience, my goal is not to fool them. That's not my intention. That will take care of itself in the common language of fooling people. But that's not the conversation I'm bringing. The conversation I'm bringing through the craft of magic is I am here, you are there. This experience will be created by us working together. We will both together experience something profound. We will explore our humanity. We will explore different sides of our intellect. We will explore the true meaning of, dare I say, love in the moment. We will even explore our own cynicism and resignation in this game called life. But I promise you, I will do my job well. And if you come with an open mind and heart, you will leave here with your, with your point of view of reality completely expanding. So their blind spots will go from this to this when they leave my show. And to me, Marcus, to do that with 50 people, 50 strangers, to get 50 strangers all responding as one entity, to me is a miracle. And these are people I've never met before. It is a joy. I mean, I, I love speaking. I, I hate being in a crowd, but I don't mind being in front of one. And uh, I did my uh, second gig uh, since lockdown uh, last week. And what was really interesting was in the build-up, I had this incredible plan all mapped out. And as soon as I walked on stage, just forgot it, like I always do. Then uh, working through, working the audience, um, trying to understand what was going through their mind, what their priorities were. And I, I knew my themes, uh, but now I could contextualize it. I, I think that's really a really important part of the um, uh, process of developing a relationship with strangers. And you know, that's what we do in sales. That's what you do at work. You know, a lot of these people are colleagues. But you use the word love, which I think is really important. When you love people, you are ready to confront them. You're ready to challenge them. What you won't do is you won't let them continue to fail without... Say that last bit again. You won't let them continue to fail. Let them fail. Continue to fail. Right. And so... There is conflict in love. And you need, I think as a leader, as a manager, as a seller, you should sell with love. You should manage with love because it means that you're giving of yourself without the expectation of immediate return. You recognize that as part of this human community, there is reciprocity. At some point, there will be a transaction. Now, you need to have a framework because you can't just turn up and do a bunch of free consulting. Uh, people need to establish in the pledge you know, why we are here, what we are both trying to accomplish. Is there common purpose? At the end, have we accomplished that, those outcomes that we mutually agreed at the beginning? And I think one of the beauties of having this level of discipline is 
you eliminate ambiguity. Everything is, uh, every action, every decision, every snippet of conversation and communication is done intentionally and with clarity. So neither side needs fear the other because it's that ambiguity, it's that uncertainty we're afraid of. I'm really hearing a commitment to something really big, but without any kind of attachment to how it should look because it's going to be a very organic process. Okay. Yeah. I'm also hearing, I'm also hearing a declaration. What are people truly standing for? Can I share this with you? Please. Because this is something I did at one of my seminars for my students. Let me just get this up. Okay. D-E-C-L-A declaration. I did my own declaration in the last few years about what am I standing for as a magician, as an artist, as a teacher, a speaker. I'm going to read this very quickly so the listeners will get this. And if they hear it, I encourage you all to get out a piece of paper and write down your own declaration. Okay, because this is a very powerful stake in the ground. Okay, listen carefully. Every performance I give is a privilege opportunity for me to transform the mindset and point of view that my audience may have about magic and magicians. With every performance, I want my audience to think and feel that I'm the best magician they've ever seen. Now, I may not be the best magician in the world, just the best my audience has seen in that moment. This carries a huge responsibility because mediocrity is not an option for me. I'm only interested in honest, authentic expression of classical magic, elegant sleight of hand card magic. My magic is designed to be magical, meaningful, and memorable. I'm committed to constant personal growth, technical mastery, authentic self-expression. This is all mixed with theater and artistry. This is my vision, this is my stand, this is my quest. I want my audience to say, I never thought magic could be so beautiful. My audience will feel the thrill of astonishment. Their intellect will be confronted by the impossible with the acknowledgement, this can't happen. And yet I saw it with my own eyes. Okay. I practice and study like there's no tomorrow. This is my gift, my passion for me. My show is my gift to my audience. Very nice. Would you believe, Marcus, this declaration has transformed my mindset and how I approach my craft? And this is what the audience feels from me in the first seven seconds. And that's intense. So you're turning up and you're intentionally <coughs> performing in that way. Yes. And uh, again, if you take nothing away from listening to this episode, understand how you show up really matters. What you project out is exactly what the audience will or your customer will pick up on. And then they will reflect back what makes them feel safest. If they uh, see you as a threat, they will be defensive. If they see you as basically insulting their intelligence by ah. using shitty questions or bad performance and bad technique, and, or you uh, say something stupid like, well, I don't suppose you want to make more profit, do you? And you sound like an utter wanker, um, then you absolutely deserve to be kicked in the head. So the reality is you've got to turn up and you have to have that intent to serve and to help. And you've got to turn up with love, which is you care about the other people. You're curious about them. You genuinely want them to be more successful and you're helping them create their better future. That's your job as a seller. And I think that's really your job as a performer. I'm sure you remember the issue with Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Oscars. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This is very interesting to me because I was never interested in Will Smith to begin with anyway. All right. The films were okay, but but when I saw that, I became interested in him because I wanted to understand, this is my interest in human nature now, on the biggest night of his life, why would a man behave like that? Mm -hmm. Because this is going to have serious ramifications for all performers and everyone in business. And it all comes down to how do you treat yourself and how do you show up in the world? If you show up in the world with any hidden trauma that needs healing is going to reveal itself at a very inappropriate time that can cost you dearly. 
Okay. So I watched this and I just thought, what a tragedy. I read his book, Will Smith's book, and I got all the answers I needed. It was all rooted in his childhood because he is a genius. Will Smith has one of the most vivid imaginations I've ever encountered. And his imagination shows up in all the films he's been in. And what a tragedy that his behavior came out the way that it did on what should have been a a shining, glorious night for him. So how does this apply to everything that we do? Marcus, do you realize every time I step out on show, the possibility of somebody leaving their seat to come and punch me is real Mm. because I've behaved in an inappropriate manner or I said something that upset the boyfriend of a girl sat at my table. So guess what? I looked at my script. I looked at my conduct, my energy, Am I saying or behaving in any way that is likely to cause offense? What is the unanswered question that is in the mind of people when they meet me for the first time? Can I feel safe in your company? Will you hurt me? It's right in the background for everybody. I feel it. It's limbic. It's, it's, you know, your, your brain is wired to look for threats and danger. And other human beings represent a massive threat in evolutionary terms because you know you have uh, the resources were scarce and human beings were probably the things that were going to kill you. So we're wired in this way, Mike. Look, we, we've come to time. I'm really sorry, but this is oh, we've really had a good conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is just whizzed by. Well, certainly it has for me. How can people get hold of you? MichaelVincentMagic.com. That's where they can learn all about my magic. Okay, and what about your coaching? VincentAcademy.co.uk. Okay, and uh, have you got any shows coming up? Yes, I'm at the Magic Circle on the 7th of October. So if they head over to the Magic Circle website and click on Close Up at the Magic Circle, they can see all the dates for the shows now, if you get an opportunity, go, because he is just a stunning performer. Even when you know how he does the damn things, it still looks like magic. And uh, it's genuinely a brilliant and entertaining show. And it will stimulate your thinking. Michael Vincent, thank you. Marcus, thanks so much. I know you've got a lot of source material to get through and edit for your podcast. Um, well, I'm so thrilled. Alex does that. I'm so thrilled to be part of this conversation. So please send me the link when it's all ready. I want to share it with my community. And thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you. And actually, the parallels are just fabulous. So there's real value here for everybody uh, to listen to. In the meantime, look, if if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com, I'm launching a couple of new training programs, Successful Selling and Hiring Winners. If you want to predict... Uh, whether or not you're going to get James Bond or James Bean, then the Hiring Winners program is for you. If you want to sell more, more successfully with less effort and end up doing less work. I mean, let's be honest. Who wants to work harder when you can do less for more? Um, right. And get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.